You have allowed this dark lord to twist your mind until now. Until now, you have become the very thing you swore to destroy. Don't lecture me, Obi Wan. I see through the lies of the Jedi. I do not fear the dark side as you do. I have brought peace, freedom, justice, and security to my new empire. Your new empire? Don't make me kill you. Anakin, my allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy. If you're not with me, then you're my enemy. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. I will do what I must. You will try. Welcome, everyone, from across the universe to the Wampa's Lair podcast. Star Wars is for everyone, so pull up a chair, get comfortable, and join the conversation with your hosts, Carl LeClaire and Jason Hunt, here in the Wampa's Lair. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Wampus Lair podcast. This is episode number 419, Iconic Moments. I'm, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, the Han Solo to my Luke Skywalker, we've got Carl LeClaire. You're all clear, kid. Now let's blow this thing and go home. But I just got here, Carl. I want to do a podcast. All right, fine. Okay, okay, good. We can Shoot. do a quick one. <laughs> okay, a quick one. All right, good, good, good. <laughs> I I am so excited. We we are just coming to the end of our annual This Is Madness tournament, where, of course, we changed the rules this year and did a whole bunch of iconic scenes from all across Star Wars and asked you to vote every day throughout the month of March. And we are going to talk about this the four scenes that made the final four. So... The top four scenes that you all picked to be the most iconic moments in Star Wars. We are going to discuss all four of those tonight, as well as announce who we think will be the winner, because the winner will be crowned tomorrow as of this recording. And uh, as of right now, it's a very, very close matchup um, between our final yeah. two of Duel of the Fates and Binary Sunset. Yeah. No, so when when the episode is released, we will be also announcing the winner of our 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 This Is Madness tournament, Carl. And and right now it's it's super close, but according to the numbers we got at the moment, Duel of Fates is ahead of Binary Sunset by just a few votes. So I'm here for it. That's that's where my vote fell. That's that, that was my projected winner on my personal bracket. Now most of my bracket has been very wrong, but I'm hoping to at least have the winner correct. <laughs> yeah. No, that that was what I voted for today too. So, not going to lie. Binary Sunset is just iconic. It's it's, you know, classic Star Wars, but for me, those two scenes, Duel of Fates hands down every single time. Not going to lie. 
No question for me either. And and we're going to get into talking about all four of those scenes. Um, obviously, two of them have already been eliminated as of this recording, but they were still awesome as heck. And both semifinal uh, came down to a matter of two or three votes. You know, so Duel of the Fates narrowly beat Battle of the Heroes. And then uh, Binary Sunset narrowly be the the iconic scene from Empire of I Love You, I Know. So we're going to talk about all four of those scenes um, on this week's episode. And I'm so excited because these are such awesome moments. Um, yeah. So really looking forward to having that conversation about these scenes that you all find as well to be very iconic moments in Star Wars. Um, but before we get into that discussion, we had a uh, giveaway that we announced on last week's episode, and that was posted to our Twitter and Instagram this past week, um, which was an opportunity to win the Target exclusive Target exclusive two pack of Din Djarin and Grogu. And I would like to congratulate our winner, Bobby Wan Kenobi, over on Twitter. Congratulations, Bobby Wan, for winning the uh, Grogu and Din 2-pack. And we will be getting that sent out to you later this week. Yeah, no, that's that's terrific. Um, it's a great figure, and congratulations. Um, I like to think Bobby Wan is Obi-Wan's uh, hick cousin, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if you aren't, uh, but like when I hear Bobby Wan, I'm just like, oh yeah, he lives in West Virginia somewhere. I would think um, <laughs> that's where he went into exile rather than Tatooine. <laughs> um, they're making moonshine. Sorry. <laughs> I've probably just offended it. I'm, I'm very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Um, but yeah, so uh, we will have another giveaway for y'all at the um, end of April as well. So um, hopefully you'll still be with us by that time and, and see what that one is as well. Yes, we've got presents that we have to give away. Um, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> I don't know where that song came from. It was uh, never mind. We've got we got a fun topic, though, today, Carl. We got four iconic scenes that uh, got voted into the final four of our This Is Madness tournament this year by all of our Larian listeners, which is fantastic. Yes. And they picked some good ones. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So um, in, in case you're, f- for whatever reason, if this is your first time ever listening to The Wampas Lair, uh, thank you for listening, first and foremost. But secondly, um, just to give some context to the conversation we're having, um, we every March we do a tournament called This Is Madness, where traditionally in the past we you know do character matchups every day of the week. Um, but we decided to change things up this year, and we just came up with a list of 32 iconic scenes from all 11 Star Wars films plus Clone Wars, Rebels, and Mandalorian. And each day you all got to vote which which scene you preferred most of these iconic moments. And that's what we've we've narrowed down to this final four that we're going to talk about um, on this week's episode. Um, and just before we dive in as well, just a, another reminder that in two weeks, so two weeks from this show, we are going to be joined by none other than my personal favorite Star Wars author, Matthew Stover, the iconic author of the Revenge of the Sith novel. I am so, so, so ecstatic that he has agreed to come on the show and talk to us um, specifically about the Revenge of the Sith novel, as well as some of his other works in Star Wars. So again, just a reminder, if you have any questions that you would like to ask Matthew Stover about any of his work in the Star Wars literature world, please email those to us at wampaslerpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to share those questions um, in two weeks on the episode. 
Yeah. And we'll send out some, you know, social media reminders, but we would prefer you to email them all so we have them all in one location to ask him from so that we're not trying to find things all over the place. So, um, but yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, I have not read the book in, in years. Uh, and I've just started uh, listening to it on audible because I got it this month because of uh, the fact that we're going to have Matthew Stover on. Cause that's exciting. Um, and I'm enjoying it. I forgot how, I forgot how much I liked the storytelling uh, that he does in this. It's really unique and it's fantastic. So um, it, it puts it into a mythological level. Um, just the way he writes the stories and talks about the characters and things like that. Yeah, his so. his form of prose is something that's never been used before, specifically in Star Wars movie novelizations. Um, and his, his ability to, to tell the internal story of the characters. Um, I mean, the revenge of the Sith novel is not only my favorite star Wars novel. It's my favorite novel period in the history of all books I've ever read. Um, and if the revenge of the Sith novel was perfectly translated to screen, it probably would be my favorite star Wars movie. Um, but there's sadly a breakdown between the brilliance of the novel and the somewhat, uh, non-perfection of execution in the movie, in my opinion. So, um, but be that as it may, yes. So excited to have him on with us uh, in two weeks. Um, yeah. Because uh, next week we are bringing back Tales of the Larians. Uh, Jason has uh, a longtime friend and listener of the show joining him to, to tell his Star Wars tales. Um, and I'm so excited to, to get back into that segment next week. Yeah. No, I'm very excited. We... Uh... I recorded it with our, our guest. Uh, I won't say who it is yet. Uh, over the weekend, last weekend. Um, so it's all edited and ready to go. And it's it's exciting. It's a fun conversation. So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to bringing the segment back. And for you guys, for those of you who have never heard the segment because you're newer listeners, kind of introduce it to you guys again. So yes, yes, it's I'm a... Excited. It's a kind of an homage to the, the sadly kind of uh, fall into the wayside old podcast, My Star Wars Story, that Scott Rifen used to do, um, which was a wonderful Star Wars podcast, just getting everyday folks as well as some of big name folks to tell their Star Wars stories. So Tales of the Larian was started years and years ago, kind of in light of uh, an appreciation for that particular podcast. So it's been kind of on a hiatus for almost three years. Um, so super excited to get that back, um, in, uh, in our feed. Yeah. Um, but yes, let's, let's talk some iconic star Wars moments, Jason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what we're here to do. So we should probably get started on that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Which, so, so let's, what are we going to start with Carl? We, let's start with, uh, episode three's battle of the heroes, this iconic duel, between Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi. And let's hear from some of the folks behind that scene a little bit about how it came to be. Going through, it was important to Nick that he installed the story uh, to the fight so that the, 
there was uh, an exchange of power, and my character's meant to be the chosen one, and supposed to be, you know, one of the better Jedi's as, as far as fighting goes. And that was sort of, I think, a, a difficult thing to get around. So it didn't make one of us look substantially weaker than the other. And I think he kind of balanced it just perfectly. Hayden in this film has moved up to um, a level nine. He's gone past Obi. Now, the difference between a level 8 and a level 9 really is the dark side. You have to go through each level in order to attain the next level. And if you do it too quick, you're going to get in trouble. So that's how I work on his, you know, his downfall is going to be aggression. Obi is also aggressive. They're almost the same, those two, because they've learned, they've come up through the same way. Taught by Qui-Gon, Tyrannus, Yoda. It's the same line. They are sort of mirror images, but they, uh, they're certainly different. They just match. Sorry, I kind of quit that abruptly. But yeah, that was the end of it. <laughs> so um, that's, of course, Hayden Christensen in his very monotone, even normal way of speaking, uh, talking a little bit about um, you know, how, how he understood Anakin and Obi-Wan's fateful duel to go down. And Nick Gillard talking a lot about how the whole point of that duel was to kind of choreograph this this brilliant fight of these these two characters who know each other's fighting styles in and out, right? I mean, they have been in the Clone War together for three years at this point. They've fought side by side in probably countless battles. They know each other's skill. They've probably sparred together for their own personal growth. So the idea of choreographing this kind of iconic duel, it was very important from Nick Gillard's standpoint, which of course is the, you know, the stunt coordinator for the prequel trilogy to really showcase the mirroring of their styles, but at the same time show how Anakin goes one step further, right? He's willing to take it to the next level because he's not afraid to tap into the dark side. Um, but you know, I'm not surprised Jason, that this duel went as far as it did. Um, it's not one of my favorite duels in star Wars personally. And I, I know we, we, I talked about this a little bit, a few episodes ago, um, that this particular duel sadly was the first time star Wars ever disappointed me. Um, you know, it was in, there's a lot of reasons for that, but be that as it may, this duel, the battle of the heroes was this culmination of nearly 20 years of expectation, right? Folks, had, mm-hmm. It's 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 literally mentioned in the Return of the Jedi novel, um, written by James Kahn, that there's this there's this scene where Vader remembers the lava crawling up his back. So I mean, as early as you know, the, in 1983, George Lucas had already conceived this idea that Obi Wan and Darth Vader had their first iconic meeting on a lava planet. Um, so finally getting to see that realized, I think, was just so exciting for so many fans. Um, and it is without doubt, probably the fastest duel ever captured on film. I'm almost positive that it still stands as the longest duel on film in film history. Um, I mean, it's just so iconic, you know, uh, what, what kind of stands out to you about this particular duel, Jason? Oh man. Um, it, it does have so many different uh layers and journeys and story you know in a sense kind of different stories to it um in the 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 different areas that it goes it goes from something um you know i don't know if more civilized is the right word but something more public in you know the the refinery area where there's all the you know while they're dead there's all the separatists there um 
And that's where things start. You know, obviously, you know, Padme is there at the very beginning. And then it, it goes, you know, it, it starts very personal with mm-hmm. Padme being there, someone there who um, is close to both of them and knows both of them and, and can't bear to see what's about to happen. And then it goes back into the war by going back through where the, the separatists are all slain and lying all over the ground. And then it just moves away to where it's just the two of them and everything kind of while there's lava splashing and crashing all over the place and they're, you know, tumbling off buildings and flowing down the river. Um, everything kind of just zones out and it's just the two of them. Um, and so I, I do like the storytelling aspect of, of all this because it does go from sort of different environments uh, emotionally um, for them. But, uh, I thought it was a, a really uh, fun, terrific duel, but um, just even myself, uh, I I tended to gravitate more towards the Sidious Yoda duel in this movie. Um, it is still incredibly iconic, and of course, the shot where they clash and sort of grab each other's wrists as the you know volcano volcano behind them sprays up is the the iconic image that they, you know, marketed everywhere from this duel. Um, and it's, you know, that's really, you know, quite a, a very good, like, encapsulation of what's going on between the two of them. So uh, I think it works. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm probably a little bit more with you. I think it might have been a little drawn out. Um it needed to be longer than most duels, I think, but it might have been a little bit drawn out. But that's what happens when you get George Lucas and Steven Spielberg working on the same duel together. So, um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I enjoy it. It's not my favorite duel, but it's definitely uh, iconic for a reason. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think the 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 deepest tragedy of the duel is the fact that it is this rending apart of this brotherhood. You know, these are two characters who, um, whether or not the prequel trilogy did a fantastic job of executing this reality of the close brotherhood of these two characters, Clone Wars certainly helped flush that out a lot more. Um, but be that as it may, I mean, you know, I love how we call it battle of the heroes, which actually that, that title was coined by John Williams, right? When he, he, wrote the concert piece for this duel. He calls it Battle of the Heroes. And that's really the sadness of what happens in this trilogy is the fact that Sidious is able to create this this gulf between these two um, incredibly close friends that they come to blows like this. Um, You know, I appreciated the comment that Nick Gillard mentions about how, or not Nick Gillard, but Hayden Christensen says, you know, that he tried to choreograph this in such a way that it tells a story, that the duel itself tells a story. I, I am remiss to catch that story. So if, if you, I mean, there are obviously, you know, lots of you who love this duel above all duels. So if you feel like you see the narrative of the that duel, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I don't really see one. To me, it's just a lot of flash. <laughs> and sound and light. Um, I I feel like the only incredibly narrative parts of the duel are the very beginning and the very end. The middle is just 
wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Um, it's, <laughs> it kind of lacks substance in my opinion. Um, and, and sadly, I think, again, if you, if you read the duel in the novel, if you read the duel, even in some of the early, uh, the script and screenplay, there was supposed to be a lot more, uh, verbal dueling going on throughout this fight. It's not meant to be just physicality. And sadly, that's how we chose, how George chose to film it. Um, but again, like it is, I mean, it's, it's, it is the kind of climactic moment of the prequel trilogy. You know, everything falls apart for Anakin because of this duel. Ultimately, um, it's what tears him apart from the most important person in his life. I, I would, I would argue that Obi-Wan's relationship to Anakin is even more important than his relationship to Padme. Um, I feel like that's that's the biggest tragedy of the prequels is is less so his his rupture of losing Padme and more so about being torn away from Obi-Wan. Um, and that's what this duel really personifies. Yeah, it is. It is the rupturing. It is the fracturing. It is the breaking apart of of this uh, relationship that is so needed for. Anakin's continued well-being and because it is rupturing because it is fracturing due to the uh, influence of Sidious and uh, the choices that Anakin has decided to make it tears that relationship apart and cuts him off from a lifeline uh, that he can't stay on the right path without so, yeah. And I've always thought it interesting, you know, um, you know, Nick Gillard in that in that comment makes kind of the point that technically speaking, Anakin is the more powerful of the two. He is the mm-hmm. more skilled combatant, yet he still loses. But he ultimately loses because of his inability to keep his emotions in check. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's just so interesting. So, you know, because I think this is a this is a conversation Star Wars fans have loved to have have loved to have had for years now, but you know, um, if, if you took out the emotion, who would have won that fight? And I think in a, if, if, if somehow Anakin could have tempered his emotions, he probably would have won that fight. Um, Oh yeah. I don't think, I don't think there's a question about that. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think for Obi-Wan, I mean the, the fighting styles, I will say the one thing that definitely comes out, right. The fighting styles are very clear. Anakin is the aggressor. Obi-Wan is the defender. Right. Mm-hmm. And Obi-Wan is constantly retreating throughout the fight, um, giving ground to Anakin. And I don't know, it kind of reminds me of Rocky three when Rocky at the end of the movie has to fight Clubber Lang again. And he ultimately beats Clubber Lang because he lets Clubber just beat the hell out of him and exhaust himself. And then he just, you know, then he returns the favor and knocks him out. You know, right. Obi-Wan's in some way, I feel like he's kind of doing that. He's letting Anakin really vent the anger, really pour all this energy in and Obi-Wan's able to defend and then when the moment's right, he strikes. Um, mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, I'd say that while Anakin may have the advantage on raw power, Obi-Wan's level-headedness and just excellence of skill will always allow him to win that fight. Yeah. Yeah, it is It is the ability of Obi-Wan to, to maintain his cool, to maintain his level head for the most part. Um, you know, that, that puts him over and wins the day uh, for him. Although he would argue that nobody won, um, I think. So 
because right. he lost Anakin. Um, that's where Anakin died for Obi Wan. Mm-hmm. Uh, becomes you know bitter and disillusioned about all of this. Uh, you know later on as thing as time progresses, but yeah, it's a uh, it's a <laughs> it's a very impactful impactful sequence and of course the the end of that when he they're standing there on the lava bank and obi-wan's just pouring his heart out um before he leaves is is just the perfect way to end the scene Mm -hmm. yeah no question about that um well let's look at our last our next iconic moment um that also was very close to to making the finals, which is, of course, that iconic scene from Empire Strikes Back where Han and Leia um, exchange their vows of love. Um, and this is obviously a scene that has been talked about for 40 plus years now and the way in which okay. it came to be. Um, but let's listen to what Irvin Kirshner had to say about it during the Empire of Dreams documentary, which which obviously came out in, I believe, 2004 with the DVD releases. But here's what Irvin Kirshner had to say about this iconic scene in that particular documentary. Yeah. We looked at the scene where Han Solo goes into the freezing chamber. George had scripted uh, an exchange between Princess Leia and, and Han Solo, which went uh, like this. She said, I love you. And Han Solo said, I love you too. And it kind of uh, seemed to me that we weren't taking advantage of the character that we'd established for Han Solo. We tried take after take after take. Nothing satisfied me. And finally, I said, Harrison, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Let's do it. Okay, action. I love you. I know. And, and he dropped in, and I say, cut. I said, yeah, that's a great line. That's Han Solo. So I, I, I just want to – go ahead. Were you going to say something? I just remember uh, – I don't remember – I don't think it was in this documentary, but one of the other uh, documentaries I've seen is uh, Irving goes, yeah, that's it. Uh, cut, break for lunch. <laughs> uh, and the crew was like, what? You sure that's what you want? And he's like, yeah, no, that's perfect. We're going to end it there. Great take. Uh, so, <laughs> so, and it is. It is so freaking perfect for the characters and the scene and everything. Um, you know, Han's not my, my boy like he is yours, but there is no doubt that that is pure Han Solo 100%. And because of that is one of the most iconic love lines in movie history, mm-hmm. you know, even outside of star Wars. So, yeah. Yeah. It, and like, well, like I was saying, you know, it, it's interesting because there have been so many different documentaries addressing this particular scene and each one kind of has a little take, a little bit of a different take on how this happened. And I think it's just a nice reminder of how, History is always revised, you know, and, and it's always tempered by people's abilities to have good memories. Um, so over the summer, I finally read I've been wanting to read this for years, but it, it was published in 1981 right after the movie came out. And it was 
uh, it's called uh, the journal of the making of empire strikes back. And it was written by an English um, journalist who was able to be on set for the entire filming of empire strikes back. And he kind of, you know, each day wrote in his diary, different things about the production. And it was interesting because this scene was a very heated scene to film. They, cause that's, that scene that the set, the, the carbonite chamber set was a very uncomfortable filming location because it was very hot. The steam was very, difficult that the lighting was hard to shoot um and it was actually one of the one of the most heated um uh instances in in all of the original trilogies filming carrie fisher was pissed off during a lot of this making because the the idea of changing those lines she was left out of that entire discussion which was sadly pretty typical of the way female actors were not approached during the making of films in that time period. Um, you know, George had written this, the script is I love you. I love you too. And Harrison and Irvin kind of had a one-on-one meeting about like, let's fix this. And Carrie was never consulted and she was really, really pissed off. This was something that's never been mentioned in any of the documentaries, which I'm not surprised because they don't want to give any of the negative press. But I loved that journal love book because that particular journalist was very upfront about how pissed off Carrie Fisher was that she was left out of the loop. So in case you didn't know that, that, I think that is an important thing to realize is that, you know, she, she gave one of her strongest performances, I would say in the original trilogy in this movie. And yet she was still left out of the loop on some big things. Um, and she was particularly pissed off at Harrison Ford because <laughs> um, he specifically just kind of left her out of it. Um, so I have a lot of mixed feelings about Harrison Ford, especially in his younger days. He seems like a bit of a bit of a jerk, but uh, be that as it may. A player, yes, you know, yeah. Well, he was he took advantage of her several times. Uh, it, if you didn't know that, read J.W. Rinsler's book. He was a lot older than her. And ugh, yeah, Harrison was a skeevy dude back in those days. But um, anyway. Uh, this scene is obviously incredibly iconic and they knew that the, I love you too, just wasn't going to work, right? Like it, it, it felt too cheesy. It felt too hammy for something Han Solo would say. Um, and it's interesting cause like, you know, in this, the clip I just played, Irvin makes it sound like, you know, don't think about it. Let's just shoot it. But I've heard other versions where Harrison very strongly makes the point. Like I came up with that line. It's, it's again, really up for debate where it came from. But be that as it may, um, it was indicative of the way Irvin Kirshner directed in Empire Strikes Back in the sense that he gave a lot of freedom to the actors, something George did not do in the prequels, let alone uh, A New Hope. Um, so whenever George directs, it's stick to the script, stay there. But Irvin Kirshner was, you know, he was an actor's director. Much can be said to be true of um, Ryan Johnson. You know, that was very true of him in, in The Last Jedi. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, this scene is great because it's, you know, it's kind of the, to me, it's the culmination of Han and Leia's relationship in the original trilogy. It's where the tension between these two is really, truly broken. You know, much of the beginning of the movie, there's this, there's this dancing between the two of them. There's, there's clearly this romantic sexual tension between Han and Leia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they share that first kiss in the, in, in the asteroid field. But I would say that this is even a bigger deal, bigger than that first kiss, because this scene is about showing how what exists between Han and Leia isn't just <laughs> some fling, but it's something really deep. They have developed a relationship of love. Um, and 
you know, I think in this scene, um, in the original trilogy, I would say that this is Han's bravest moment because he surrenders himself to something outside of himself. He surrenders himself to another person out of love. And in a very powerful way, it's Leia's most vulnerable moment because she admits that she loves someone in a very, you know, romantic way. And she even admits that in the face of an enemy, you know, Vader's there, Boba Fett. (laughs) Um, So it's, you know, it's this really powerful scene where these two characters really confess a truth about who they are and what they've come to share. Yeah. Now it, you're right. And it is, you know, extremely vulnerable for both of them to do this in, in, you know, the presence of Vader, Boba Fett, and Lando to some extent, you know, but they may never ever see each other again. And words unsaid can come back to haunt you. So, uh, it's, it's risky, but necessary. Um, and, and the two of them, you know, manage to, to get that out there. Uh, and, and of course that builds on, you know, what they're able to do, uh, in Return of the Jedi. It's why Leia goes out and, uh, rescues Han from Jabba the Hutt. It's why they end up having, uh, Ben together, um, and all this stuff. So, you know, it's, it all comes back to this moment because this is when things went from sort of a, you know, romantic tension and curiosity and kind of a fling situation to, no, this is really something more serious. This is really something deeper. Um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and this is, this is that turning point where things went from, this could be fun to know this means everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, (laughs) interestingly enough, I would compare this, this, the, you know, the the tension of these two and their romance and empire to two particular moments in last Jedi. I think Han and Leia's first kiss is a great similarity to Ray and, and Kylo touching hands on Octo. You know, that's kind of their first intimate moment. And in the same way of the I love you, I know, I think that's the moment when Ben chooses to kill Snoke and call the lightsaber to Rey. Um, You know, it's this confession of I need you and I want you. Um, Granted, Ben is still not fully in the right place. (laughs) Um, But uh, I I feel like these are these movies both have great moments of romantic tension being broken. Um, And uh, yeah, you know. Um, I've made this point before, um, but I'm going to make it again. The, this whole scene ties in very beautifully to the end of Solo, right? When Han and Kira are sharing their final moment together and Kira says, you know, go help Chewbacca. He needs you and you're going to need him too. You know, she entrusts him to Chewie knowing what she's about to do. And in the same way, Han, you know, says, Chewie, you know, the princess, you have to, you have to look after her, take care of her. You know, um, this is Han entrusting his beloved best friend to his beloved princess. <laughs> you know, it's it's mm-hmm. this moment of of making sure that the people he cares most about are taking care of each other. And if I can take it even one step further, if you look in uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus's dying moments when you have 
the apostle John and Mary standing at the foot of the cross. Jesus says, behold your mother and mother, behold your son. And it's this moment where he's about to die and he knows that and he doesn't want to leave his apostles and his mother alone. So he entrusts them to each other. And, 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 mm-hmm. and you know, this might be a bit of a stretch, but I feel like in a beautiful way that and in that moment, Han is doing something similar. He wants to make sure that the two most beloved people in his life aren't left alone. So he entrusts them to each other. Um, and I think, you know, the, I feel like one of the reasons this moment is so iconic is just, you know, the badassery of Han saying, I know, but I don't think it's meant to be just like he's a badass, but it, it is his way of, of really acknowledging to Leia saying, I know this, like, I, I know what I'm doing here. Don't feel guilty, you know, cause mm-hmm. I bet you, she feels like, oh my gosh, if he'd never gotten involved with me in this rebellion, he'd be fine still. And Han saying, I know what I'm doing. And I believe that. And, and I think it's a nice reminder to us that it's just so important, you know, to constantly remind the people in our lives that we care about, that we love them just because you never know what's going to happen. You never know when they might be taken away from you um, or you might be taken away from them. So, you know, take every opportunity you can get to remind the folks that you love that you love them. Um, So, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is, this is obviously just such a great, great moment. Yeah. Now that's, it's iconic for a reason and it it's lasted this long and become a part of popular culture, you know, um, for a reason. And it's really, you know, really terrific the way it all played out. So, mm-hmm. um, well, let's move into back into the prequel era. Um, and to me, the greatest duel of all Star Wars, Duel of the Fates, obviously my opinion. And as of right now, the majority opinion of Larian's as well, the most iconic moment in Star Wars. But Duel yeah. of the Fates is something truly special, to quote um, Supreme Leader Snoke. Uh, let's get a little bit of the background on this iconic duel from the, mouths of the, the mouth of the maker himself. I was looking for a kind of sword fighting that was reminiscent of what was in the movies that we'd already done but a more energized version of it because we'd actually never seen real Jedis at work. We'd only seen crippled half-droid, half-men, and young boys that had learned from these old people. So to see a, a Jedi in his prime fighting in the prime of the Jedi, I wanted it to be a much more energetic and, and faster version of what we've been doing. So I think he wanted something special. I think he wanted the audience to understand where these Jedis came from, what their powers were, and how sophisticated they were in the art of battle. The Sith. Good old, good old George and his right right hand man, Mister Rick McCallum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you know, I I think this is what worked for so many of us as Star Wars fans in 1999 was this reality that George wanted to give us a duel that showed off kind of the artistry of a Jedi's form of combat, right? That there really was a martial art to this form of combat and you know um i think it's a little funny how he almost throws the the duels from the original trilogy into the bus you know all fights between old men and half men and boys (laughs) like george george is so critical of the original trilogy duels um but you know phantom menace really was going to show us like this is the jedi in their prime they are gifted warriors who who train a lifetime for combat and we get to see the the full artistry of that combat in this particular duel. Yeah. No, and it's a 
terrific fight. You know, the the choreography of this duel is second to none. It's absolutely incredible. Um, you know, the the actors, the stuntmen, uh, Nick Gillard, who helped choreograph everything, it's just all amazing and perfect. Um, but I will never, ever, ever forget the most iconic moment of this duel is the trumpet stabs as that door just slides open mm-hmm. and Darth Maul is just standing there waiting for them. That's perfect. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> bum, bum. Dun, dun, dun. Sorry. As Duel of the Fates begins to play... And Darth Maul stands there. We'll handle this. We'll take the long way. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, sure. But we're not going to get in the middle of this, you know. <laughs> I mean, everyone knows exactly what happened after you played that, you know. Uh, <laughs> yep. We all saw it, right? We all saw that right now. Exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, no, no way you can't, you can't see that, you know, but that's the beauty of, of all of this um, is that not only is it the uh, actors and the creators and the, the cinematography of everything, but the music too kind of helps tell all of this story and the music in this, because there is no dialogue uh, in this duel for the most part, other than a few words uh, between Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon, um, you need the music to tell this story. And the music is integral to this this fight. And there really is almost nothing better from the prequel trilogy in terms of music than Duel of the Fates. So um, it, it definitely lived up to the scene and the moment and has stood the test of time even on its, on its own without this, the duel, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And, and, and again, I know I made this comment not long ago on a few episodes ago, but again, this, <laughs> this was the first time in a movie I ever got goosebumps. Um, mm. You know, I mean, I, I felt the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. I felt my skin just starting to goosebump when I heard those trumpets blast and, you know, Qui-Gon's will handle this. It's like, yeah, you will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, you know, and it, I love that this is the style of fighting. I love that this is the, the characters who are fighting in episode one, you know, it is just as black and white as it gets. This is the story of good versus evil. This is the epic battle of those forces meeting head to head. And I love obviously how fast paced it is, you know, as, as George clearly kind of made fun of, I mean, this is meant to be. You know, he wanted it to be fast paced and my goodness is it now. I know like I have some friends who are very critical of the duel. They're like, oh, it's so over the top choreographed. It's like, you know what? I don't care. It's still perfect to me. And the reality is, is to me, it is more of an art form, right? If you watch martial artists fight, you know, in some ways, like, does it look the most practical? Probably not. But there's an art form to it. And I think that that's what's being conveyed in, in these combatants is this this beautiful art form taking place. Um, 
And the thing I also really enjoy is just how it showcases the different fighting styles. So the Jedi work together. Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are kind of fighting in this harmonic style. They're meant to complement one another. You know, Qui-Gon's wisdom is, uh, but kind of slower pace because of the fact that he's older is coupled with, you know, Obi-Wan tends to be a little more inexperienced, yet he's got that that vigor and youth on his side. And they use that in harmony to combat this Sith Lord who fights with this just aggressive, brutal style. And I think what's really interesting is, as you know, as the duel pans out, I feel like Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan sort of do have the upper hand as they fight together. So Maul's tactic is I need to divide them, right? Like, so it's, he's, he's trying to kick them both aside so that he can take them on one-on-one. Um, because together they really do pose a threat to Maul. So his tactic, the Sith tactic, is to divide and conquer these Jedi. And I think that mm-hmm. that's a beautiful way of kind of foreshadowing the reality of how the Sith are going to fight their war in the prequels, right? The Sith tactic is to divide people so that they can conquer them. You know, that's what ultimately, you know, going back to looking at Battle of the Heroes, that was Sidious's plan. Let me separate, divide these two characters so they can destroy each other and I can reign supreme. Right. And that's what Maul does is when he's finally able to separate them, he's able to finally cut down Qui-Gon. So I just I love that those tactics are even being played out during the fight. And of course, I think we'd be remiss not to mention kind of the the extremely brilliant comments Dave Filoni made about this fight during the uh, first season of Gallery, you know, the the making of Mandalorian special on Disney Plus, where he talked about how this is called Duel of the Fates because it's ultimately the duel that will decide the fate of the Chosen One, right? If Qui-Gon doesn't fall in this fight, Anakin may never fall to the dark side. So it's really about deciding the fate of Anakin. And I I just, I mean, that was the, you know, the brilliance of Dave Filoni to have that kind of wherewithal about how this fight has overarching impact on the saga at large. And I think, you know, some of the naysayers of this duel, they're like, oh, it didn't really matter. It really did matter. (laughs) It mattered a lot. (laughs) Yeah, no, and and not only is it, you know, the the fate of the chosen one in general, but it, it, it is sort of prophetic in the way it turns out to, the entire prequel trilogy, you know, um, it's, you know, you're, you're left with, you know, the good is dead. Um, and the, the dark has, has in a sense one, um, and the one to linger on, uh, is Obi-Wan again. So, uh, it, it is, it is still, you know, in some senses a bit prophetic in terms of how the rest of the prequels, pan out um and uh duel of fates is such a a a grand term uh that covers more than just this particular duel itself because it is good versus evil light versus dark uh and this is just but a small portion of that conflict um played out for us all to see Mm mm-hmm yeah. Um, and, you know, it, you know, even, you know, back in 99, when the movie first came out, there was obviously a lot of criticism about Phantom Menace, right? The the reliance on CGI, a lot of folks that didn't like Jar Jar. Um, obviously, Jason, you and I are in none of those camps. But the one mm-hmm. thing that was always tried and true was the awesomeness of this duel, right? You, mm-hmm. I don't believe there were any real critical naysayers in 99 about the duel of the fates. 
Um, because it was, it was the coolest lightsaber duel we'd ever seen on screen. Now, did it have the same maybe emotional context as Luke and Vader on Cloud City or Luke and Vader in front of the Emperor? Probably not, not not to a certain degree. The, the emotional stakes aren't certainly as high, but just the sheer excitement of the choreography of the fight, in my opinion, has yet to even been close to have been matched in, in all of Star Wars. Um, I, I mean, to me, this this duel stands on such a pedestal, nothing, nothing else even quite comes close. So... But that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, it's it's definitely up near the top. Uh, you know, my, my duels tend to shuffle back and forth. And I've always been partial to the Dooku duels and Attack of the Clones. But in recent year, recent months, this one's definitely given that one a run for its money in my head. But, you know, but that's just because I love Dooku so much. But anyway, uh, that has nothing to do with the actual <laughs> duel itself. It's just I like the count. Um <laughs> <laughs> But Duel of Fates is definitely by far way more iconic than any of the Dooku duels. That's for sure. Yes. Um, no question there. <laughs> that's why we're talking about it tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we got one more. Though. We do. And, and while, again, as, as of right now, as we record, Duel of Fates does have the slight edge over this final iconic moment. But I feel like this is the perfect one to end on because – whether you and I would even vote for this, and obviously it doesn't sound like either of us did, but mm-hmm. the binary sunset is such a quintessential Star Wars moment. You know, you yeah. show this picture to the the vast majority of, of folks in American culture, they're going to be able to tell you who that character is and, some, and at least a little something about it. And of course, it's that iconic scene of the binary sunset um, in episode four, A New Hope. You must understand I need you here, Luke. But it's a whole nother year. Look, it's only one more season. Yeah, she said when Biggs and Tank left. Where are you going? Looks like I'm going nowhere. I have to go finish cleaning those droids. Oh, and he can't stay here forever. Most of his friends have gone. It means so much to him. I'll make it up to him next year. I promise. <laughs> Luke's just not a farmer, Owen. He has too much of his father in him. That's what I'm afraid of. chills right then mm. yeah that scene will do it to you <laughs> yep uh yeah you know i mean um I, I something i think really worth pointing out right right to kind of start the conversation in all honesty is a little little behind the scenes look at the fact that in the 1970s george lucas kind of had this trilogy of movies that he kind of the first big movies he made and a new hope was the final one of that trilogy you know, THX 1138, followed by American Graffiti, and then A New Hope. And all three of those movies had to do with this general theme of breaking free of your home environment, right? Mm-hmm. Setting out and making a life for your own. It was, you know, that pinnacle of adolescence experience of, 
you know, for the, the, the common American experience of leaving home to go to college or leaving home to start a new job, whatever it may be, but right. Kind of that break from your adolescent world into a larger world. So, you know, I feel like this scene beautifully captures a sentiment that George was showcasing in his first three big films. You know, this was not a new theme for George Lucas in 1977, but this scene just struck it home in a whole new way. Um, There was something beautifully imaginative about just the artistry of that scene. Yeah, no. And it's, it was really nice to be able to, you know, in, in sort of retrospect, go back and sort of take a moment to just slow down and have a character with no dialogue, you know, or anything like that, just walk out, watch the sun's set, and then walk back into the house. Just sort of take that time to have a, you know, a moment, to slow down, have a moment, and let the music and Mark Hamill tell the story of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely beautiful. It is incredibly iconic. The, you know, I can't see what Carl's playing. He's obviously got the, the, you know, the scene playing there for us. I can't see what, what's going on as he's playing it. But in my head, I can see every step Luke is taking out to, you know, the lip of the, the, um, crater, the crater. Thank you. Uh, as he steps up to watch the sunset, I can see every part of that uh, in my head as it plays to to the note almost. So that's what makes a scene iconic is when you can just hear it and it just jumps into your mind without any sort of encouragement whatsoever, uh, which is why I got chills listening to it. And it is the desire, the dreaming, the the yearning for something bigger, something beyond not only what you, you know, not only where you are, but who you are, you know, it's that, that sort of, you know, need to get out on your own need to leave home that we all feel at some point in our lives, um, that, that we're able to kind of connect in with, uh, with Luke in this situation. Um, whoever you are, no matter how old you are, how young you are, whatever situation that you find yourself in, that's very much a universal experience right there. Um, and the way that it's, it's portrayed on screen for us uh, here is beautiful. Um, and that's part of what makes it so incredibly iconic in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think it spoke to, I mean, uh, this scene, in a lot of ways, I'm sure, is what drew in American pop culture in 1977. You know, mm-hmm. yes, the the visuals and the 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 brand spanking new types of CGI that were introduced in this movie were huge. But again, what what cut, kept people coming back for more? Again, is you got to scratch beneath the surface, and this is one of those scenes that did that. It captured specifically the American spirit of dreaming for something beyond where you already are. Right. I mean, that's kind of the the essence of the American dream is to to see the sky is the limit. Right. To to see the limitlessness of possibility. And that's what Luke is feeling 
and knowing in that scene. Um, and, and it draws all of us in, like you said, Jason, regardless of age or station in life, it draws us in to be with Luke and think of what more can we become? What more can we accomplish? And this is the scene that calls out to that. And, and I think in a very beautiful way also captures the essence of what George Lucas was able to do with the Star Wars in 1977. It was this film that was kind of laughed off by so many studios, laughed off by the so much of the crew and even cast. But George was committed to this dream to just telling this simple fable that would ignite the imaginations of young people and all ages. And this yeah. scene shows that it's good to always be dreaming. It's always good to stand on those those craters of the places we feel stuck in and just look up at the sky and know that there is so much more for us. Um, and, um, you know, I'm curious if you think this is a stretch, Jason, but it, it does in a weird way remind me of that beautiful balcony scene in, in Revenge of the Sith because that's a scene about Anakin and Padme dreaming together of their future, dreaming up the beauty of what it will be like to have their family and what that might look like. But they're also hounded by so many constraints. They're constraints of stations as politicians and Jedi in a war-torn society. But Luke kind of stands in this pure place. as He's in the desert, a, a space for growth and rebirth. And Luke gets to stand there looking at the sky and dream of something big and not be as constrained by so much of life. Um, you know, I, I think Luke is that pure dreamer that exists in so many of us. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. Uh, I would say the balcony scene is is reminiscent mm-hmm. of this moment. It, it's uh, it's Anakin and Padme trying to reach that point. I think with Luke, Luke is definitely the pinnacle of of the pure uh, dreaming desire um, that that we are trying to to portray here. Um, it, it is the the purest form of that that we get. Anakin and Padme are, are are trying to, but yes, they are constrained. Where they are on a world that, uh, you know, in the Star Wars universe, uh, should give them limitless possibilities, and they are both very powerful people in their own right. Then that should give them the possibilities and the the wherewithal to be able to chase those kinds of of dreams. They really are hemmed in, and that all, in a sense, constrains them. And ultimately leads them to not be able to achieve those dreams. Whereas Luke, who is on a backwater world that everyone has, that, you know, all the important people have forgotten about, uh, you know, a, a farm boy with no real sense of, of any possibility to get off world, let alone get off the farm. Uh, he has a much more pure connection to this and is able to actually find the way to make those dreams a reality. Uh, whereas Anakin and Padme were unable to do so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's kind of funny how, you know, how that kind of contrasts itself there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. I like, I, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a very neat contrast to, to sort of play against. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there there you go. There are our thoughts on the scenes that you have all deemed to be some of the most iconic moments of Star Wars. Um mm-hmm. and you know, as always, we really welcome your input on, you know, 
all of these scenes or one of these scenes particularly that really, you know, stands out to you and, and why that's so, you know, what do you find to be so iconic about these scenes? You know, we shared our thoughts and what we think, but always love to hear what other folks think as well. Yeah. Especially if you would have preferred uh, a different scene to make it out of the way to the final um, and, and win. If, if one of these four was the one that you had picked to win our, our tournament, definitely tell us why. Um, obviously of the, the ones that we have in the final four, um, I think Duel of Fates is the one that I would have wanted to win it. Um, and hopefully fingers crossed for my own personal selfish reasons, <laughs> uh, it'll hold on, uh, overnight and emerge victorious, you know, cause that's what, uh, you know, that's what I would have picked. So, but if you wanted one of the other ones, definitely tell us why it's the most iconic for you, because, you know, that's part of why we do this podcast is to get all of the conversations going and to hear from you guys. So, um, thank you for, for giving us the, these four scenes to talk about tonight. Um, <laughs> you did our work this for podcast, us. Yeah. yeah. This <laughs> podcast is brought to you by the listeners of the Wampus Air podcast, Arlerians. So, <laughs> and viewers like you. Yes. No. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and just a reminder in case, you know, cause I know there were so many of you who, uh, you know, a couple folks kind of said like, Whoa, I, how did, you know, how did this one win on Twitter? This one was ahead. How did it lose? So just a reminder, we did do these across both Twitter and Instagram. So every day in the Instagram story, you could vote as well as on Twitter. So we tallied the to- the totality of all those votes um, at the end of each day. And that's what determined the winner. So only a couple times did it come down to um, – it happened a few times on Instagram where the winner on Instagram was not the winner. Um, and it, I think it only happened twice on Twitter, though. We certainly have a bigger audience, it seems, on Twitter to, for this than we did on Instagram. But they were actually pretty close. Each 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 space had about 50 to 60 votes a day. So um, so just again, a, a thank you to all of you who, who participated, but also even shared it and, and, you know, encouraged other people to to play along each day. So thank you so much for that. Yes, definitely. We... We greatly appreciate it, and and that's why we put together these tournaments and stuff like that because we want to have fun on the internet with you guys and Star Wars. So, yes. Uh, so thank you for that. Thank you for the moments for this episode. It was a blast. I had a lot of fun, Carl. Likewise, <laughs> yeah. I loved talking about this stuff. Um, so yeah. And like we said, you know, next week we're going to be, uh, bringing back the, ep- the tales of the Larian segment. And then the following week we'll be here again, uh, with Matthew Stover to talk about revenge of the Sith. Yes. Yeah, so please, uh, if you have any questions for Matthew Stover, uh, send us an email with those questions. We would really appreciate that. We want to get some of your, uh, input on on that episode in two weeks um but carl if people want to weigh in on any of that or anything that we discussed here where can they do that um of course we are on twitter at wampas lair you can follow us on instagram at the underscore wampas lair you can email us at wampas lair podcast at gmail.com and we're on facebook at wampas lair excellent anything else before we close down this episode my good sir no Thank you all again for giving us these great moments to discuss. Yeah. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the Wampas Lair podcast. This has been episode number 419, Iconic Moments. For Carl, I'm Jason, and we'll see you next time here in the Wampas Lair.